Good morning. Really good to see you today and be back with you and to open up God's Word with you today. Uh, before we get into the Word, I just want to thank you uh, for your support, your generous support in praying and in sending our team to Cyprus. It was a privilege to serve those who are always serving. We were able to serve many missionaries from Europe and Africa, and God really blessed the time. We had some great times to teach the Word, to lead worship, to do children's ministry, and many opportunities to just have personal time with uh, missionaries that have been on the field for 35 years and those that have been on for three months, and many opportunities to accomplish our goal, which is the same goal I live with every day, which is to rest in the Lord, deny myself, bless others. So we got a lot of opportunities to do that. While there, I really witnessed once again how God sovereignly orchestrates all things, uh, both big and small, and how there are no coincidences in life. And today, uh, being the second Sunday of 2018, uh, we're going to continue our start to the new year. Um, in fact, I was driving to church today, and I, I saw a guy uh, walking down an alley, lugging his Christmas tree to a dumpster. And I'm like, you know, you know, it's the 14th of, of January here, you know. So you all got your Christmas tree out of your house? It's a fire hazard if you don't, okay? So, uh, but today is the second Sunday of 2018. It was weird for us not to be here over New Year's and, uh, and all that, but to be back now and uh, as we continue the start of the new year, really, I want to double down on our desire to declare the glorious name of Christ in all places, in every place that God leads us. And our prayer as a church, the, the reason we exist, the reason we're even here, is to glorify God through lives transformed by the gospel. That's not just a tagline, that is a goal, that is, our, that is what we want, and all for his glory. And I want to get you into Isaiah 55 today, where you're going to have to wait for one more week to get back into Romans. We've been going through Romans verse by verse Next week, we'll start verse, uh, chapter 4 in Romans. But Isaiah 55 was one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and, so I, and I really want to preach it today. And so, I'm sorry, you have to wait one more week for Romans. But Isaiah 55 uh, dovetails very nicely with uh, where we've been the last two weeks in the preaching here at Grace. Uh, first, Ephesians 4 on uh, December 31st, walking worthy of the calling with which we've been called in Christ and humbly following Christ, being transformed by Christ. And then last week in Malachi chapter 1, God's passion for His glory, that His name will be great among the nations, and His plan to uh, fill the whole world with His glory, and that a passion for God's glory ought to fuel everything we do in life, and it also ought to focus everything we do. And today we're looking at Isaiah 55, and it focuses us on, on how God displays his everlasting glory as he extends grace and exerts power to transform lives. That's what we're going to look at today, how, how God makes an everlasting covenant and also creates an everlasting sign, and we'll see what that sign is. But first, uh, please find Isaiah 55 in your Bibles. If you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read this chapter. Privilege to stand and read the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. 
Now, this chapter, by the way, is, is just packed chock full of, of very well-known uh, biblical phrases, okay? So you're going to hear a lot of things in this chapter. We're like, wow, that's right there in that chapter. It's, it's all right here. So here we go. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us today. I pray, Lord, that you'd have your way in our hearts today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I told you this chapter is like awesome. It's got so much amazing stuff in it. We see in Isaiah 55 that God displays his everlasting glory as he extends grace and exerts power to transform lives. There is no prophetic book in the Old Testament that is more sweeping in its scope than Isaiah. It is filled with prophecy of coming judgment and uh, future restoration It is focused on the coming messianic king, the servant of God, and there is no Old Testament prophetic book that is more influential than Isaiah. It is quoted in the New Testament more than all of the other Old Testament prophets combined, so it's pretty important in the scheme of things. Uh, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 deal with God's judgment and his character. Uh, Isaiah 40 through 66 deal with God's comfort and salvation. 
And Isaiah foretells a lot of things. It foretells Israel um, going into exile and returning from exile. It foretells all the promises of God for fulfilled in Christ. Uh, the new exodus from Babylon, uh, the promise of a new creation, uh, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the desert being fruitful, and it's all fulfilled in Christ. And then you get to chapter uh, 52 and chapter 53, and it is speaking very clearly of the finished work of Christ. Before Christ ever went to the cross, hundreds of years before, he is speaking of his finished work. And then chapter 54, very interesting, it's a lot like the book of Revelation. It has a vision of the new Jerusalem populated with God's people. And then you come to chapter 55. If you had to pick a New Testament counterpart, it would be the Gospel of John. It's this passionate call to receive God's gifts freely given, his gifts of grace in faith and repentance while there is time, while there is a chance to receive these things. One commentator called Isaiah 55 a riot of rich imagery. A riot of rich imagery. Uh, to me, uh, you know, Isaiah 55 is like, like a, a beautiful blazing sunrise. And it's clear, it's fresh, it's joyful, and it points to the glory of God's ways. It talks about God's ways and you know, left to ourselves, we will never go in God's ways. We will always stray from God's ways. It's very easy to diagnose our sinful condition. We lean towards the law in everyday living. We act as if we can bring about e eternal fulfillment on our own. Uh, we lean on what we do. We lean on what we accomplish. Uh, what, what we have as our plans, and our re resolutions, and our strength, and our mind, and our opinion. And what we do is we self-righteously look down on other people while defending ourselves. It's like our daily life, right? It, and, and think about this. Even if you never lived one day on earth, and you, you, know, you grew up in outer space, okay, on this, some space station somewhere, and you're airlifted to planet earth. You would show up and you'd say, wow, things are really messed up. You would look around and, and you'd see the mess that depraved humanity has made and created and said, wow, something is very wrong. Sin is abounding everywhere. Praise God that Romans tells us where sin abounded, what? Grace abounded all the more. And here is God, the sovereign orchestrator of all things, speaking to us in Isaiah 55 about how he is bringing about everything he purposes. And that his purposes stand forever. They won't be thwarted. All the plans you're making, you know, a lot of them are just going to go by the wayside. But every plan God makes, successful. So today that's what we're going to see, how God chooses to display his everlasting glory. And this passage breaks down into two sections. First section we're going to look at, verses 1 through 7, that in making an everlasting covenant, God extends grace. It's a simple concept, and it's a very profound concept, but God extends grace. The second part we'll look at is in verses 8 through 13, that to bring about an everlasting sign, God exerts power to transform lives. 
Both those things go together, but we'll look at them one after another. And first thing we'll look at is verses one through seven, that in making an, an everlasting covenant, God extends grace. And that his invitation is one of sovereign grace. Look at verse one. It starts with the word come, and it's there four times. Come, everyone who thirsts. It's very interesting that that word come is an invitation in the imperative. Uh, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and even if you don't have any money, come and buy. It's kind of weird, isn't it? You're going to buy something with no money. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. This is all for free. And what you see in the very first verse is God's merciful care and concern for our souls and a recognition of our desperate condition. So come to the waters. Water, we take it for granted, don't we? Water is cleansing, water is refreshing. Uh, water in those days was precious. I think it is in California as well, but still we take it for granted. Water in those days was difficult to get. You know, the water vendor would be crying out. And if you got mass quantities of water, it was a blessing. We just were on the island of Cyprus. And... Uh, way out in the uh, far, far eastern Mediterranean, right underneath Turkey and uh, just to, uh, to the east is the, is the country of Jordan. And we were there, and, and we were told while we were there that there are 340 days of the year with no rain. So it rains on us like, what, three days while we're there, and everyone is loving that. They're loving the fact that they're getting rain because it's very rare there, so it's cherished. So come to the waters, and also, there's wine and milk. These are joyful, uh, satisfying Middle Eastern staples of their diet. But the word that's crazy to us is, come with no money and buy it. Buy it without price. This is pointing to the gospel of free grace. You're thirsty, you're hungry, you're broke, you're bankrupt, well, you can get what you need for free. Think about it. We're, we're all trying so hard on our own, and it's costing us, and it's leaving us thirsty and frustrated and hungry and empty and bankrupt. And God says, I'm going to give this to you for free. Look at verse 2. Question. Why are you spending your money for what is not bread? Bread, not bread. And your labor for what doesn't satisfy. You're living on substitutes that malnourish you. It's like you're eating cardboard and it's not going to help you. It's like Jesus said in John 6, 27, don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. And we go around and we try to, you know, save ourselves and we're pre wasting precious resources for things that hurt us. Not soul-satisfying. No value. The picture here is of, of lacking discernment and wisdom in making purchases. Like you're living you know, all the time on credit or something. So the question comes, does all this satisfy you? And he's speaking with urgency. He's speaking with a lot of urgency. And all who are thirsty, that's a singular 
a singular tense there, all who are thirsty. It makes it very personal for us. You're thirsty, come. But then come is an imperative that's plural. It, it, it makes it for everyone. It's like the whosoever will in John 3.16. Because God meets every person at the point of need. And what you see here is that God is saying, I'm going to pay the price. You're going to get the freedom. It's gracious. Verse 2, listen diligently to me. Who's me here? That's God. And he's saying, eat what is good. You know, like eat your veggies, I guess. Uh, eat things that have good nutrients in them. Don't just eat junk food. Uh, eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Come to God's banquet table. Enjoy what he provides. So we go to this missions trip in Cyprus. And, um, you know, I wish I could say we stayed in mud huts on the beach. Uh, that's kind of not true. And we didn't know uh, how good it would be until we got there. In fact, the first few days we were there before the rest of the team and before all the missionaries showed up. And we're at this place that, you know, is a fine place. And we're thinking, it's a great place. And then we go to the place where the conference is being held. Oh, my goodness. You're not going to like me for this, okay? I'm just telling you right now. I'm telling you right now. Um, I'm serious. It was a five-star resort. Uh, first of all, you're feeling guilty, like, kids, don't take any pictures to send back home that are showing where we're staying. Look at that bad sign over there. Show, show a picture of that. Like, I can't tell anyone where I went. Oh, and there's two meals a day that are like, I've never been on a cruise, but I think it's like cruise food. We're talking like 20 salads, 20 desserts, five kinds of meat, blah, 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 right? Okay. So the first day, you're like, woohoo, and then the second day, you're like, pace yourself, right? <laughs> And then the third day, you're like, the missionaries are coming. <laughs> Don't be a glutton, you know. Um, I'm just telling you, we had a banquet table. And, and there were people that were there that were, had an issue with it, that were like, why are we staying at such a nice place? Interesting story. I guess they had this place in another town, and they were closing it down because this is off-season. And the guy basically honored the contract and said, I'm going to put you up in the nicest place around. And literally, we paid less. It was like... 51 euros a night per person, and you get these two meals. It's crazy. It was crazy. Um, but we, we had to deal with that. We had to go, thank you, Jesus. And that's what the guy in charge of the conference, he told everybody, he goes, look, I know some of you are struggling, but just, just say thank you. God has provided for this, for us. Well, here God is saying, delight yourselves in all of this. Come to the banquet table. I've provided it for you. It's right there for you. And it says to delight yourself. Literally, your soul will delight. That's a heart satisfied in God. That's a heart content in God. Look at verse 3. Incline your ear, come to me here. There's a lot of hearing stuff in this passage. Incline your ear, listen, hear, that your soul may live. So this is life and death here. Come to me. This is the, this is the coolest part. God himself is the feast. God's the feast here. Your soul will be satisfied in him. Come to me, listen, that your soul may live. He's the feast. Like Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And God here is offering eternal salvation, not temporary relief. And he says, 
a biggie here, I will make you, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. So here's God saying, on my own, without your help, unconditional, unilateral, I'm making you a promise. Wow. I'm going to make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. And we dare not pass by that phrase. That's one of the keys to this passage. It's one of the keys to the gospel. What is the sure, steadfast love for David? It's an eternal covenant. We know that. It's going to be the source of all of our greatest blessings. We know that. It's God's unconditional, unilateral, God-initiated covenant. We know that. What's the deal about David? God's covenant with David was that someone would sit on his throne forever. God's covenant with David goes back all the way to God's covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 15, God tells him, I'm going to make you a great name. You're going to have your own land. All the nations will be blessed in you. And then in the restatement of that covenant in Genesis 17, he says, and kings will come out of you. David, king from the seed of Abraham, to rule and to reign. And, and all through time, the prophets are retelling this. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. It's speaking of David's throne and Jesus on that throne. Isaiah 11, the rod from the stem of Jesse, David's father, and the rest would be glorious. And, and it goes on, Amos and, um, and Micah and Haggai, all are speaking of the Davidic covenant and this great hope. You get to the New Testament, Luke chapter 2, which is 30 to 33. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary, makes an announcement. You've found favor with God. You're going to be the mother of Jesus. And he is going to be given the throne of his father, David. Fulfillment of the covenant in Christ. Promised. Jesus would sit on the throne. He will reign forever. It will be a never-ending kingdom. And the Gentiles will be under this king too. And Jesus will rule and reign. You get into the book of Romans. Love Romans. Look in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Jesus, our Lord, made of the seed of David regarding the flesh. So the one to come, the suffering servant, is none other than Jesus Christ. And Gentiles will rejoice. And the root of Jesse will rise to reign over the Gentiles. And in him they will trust. 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. Revelation 3.7, go all the way to the end of the Bible. Still talking about David. That, that Jesus has the key of David. Shuts and opens and opens and shuts. And here he is fulfilling the unconditional promises of God. An everlasting covenant. Revelation 5.5, 5, the vision, weep no more. The root of David has prevailed. The lamb that's been slain and they all fell before him and they prayed and they sang a new song. Worthy is the lamb. The covenant is established in the blood of the lamb. The result of the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
Isaiah 53 talks about the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in Christ. The sure mercies of David will happen to fix plan. God on the throne accomplishing all his purposes. Verse 4 is referring to David as a type of Christ. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader, a commander for the peoples. Speaking of David as this type. Verse 5, the anti-type, you shall call a nation that you do not know, a nation that did not know you will run to you. The idea that Jews and Gentiles alike will be saved in Christ. Romans 11 tells us Gentiles will come in by faith as well. And then this. Because of the Lord your God. That's the big, that's the big point right here. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Matches up with Isaiah 49, verse 7. Because of the Lord who is trustworthy, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. But here the Lord is the attraction. Not us. It's not about us. It's about him. The Lord is the attraction. Jesus died and lived again, so the blessings of David's rule, the sure mercies, are now available. And they can be offered for free and without cost to us. And this is the awesome thing. This is a unilateral covenant. God backs his invitations and his commands with guarantees. You know, you go buy something and it has, says, you know, lifetime guarantee, and then you went, oh, it's limited lifetime guarantee, and you, it breaks, and you call the place, and they're like, uh, yeah, not in your lifetime. <laughs> We're not guaranteeing that. But God's blessings are backed by covenant. He keeps his word. And here's what God is saying. It's not up to us. Taking the gospel, you're going to plant seeds. You don't have to pull people to Christ. God himself will be the magnet pulling people into the Davidic covenant blessings. He's pulling the nations to himself. The Lord is the attraction. It's ir irresistible grace. He's showing his sovereign glory as he saves and he sanctifies. He is magnetic. You don't have to be. Some of you have very magnetic personalities. Wonderful. God will use that. But you will not be pulling people to Christ. God is the magnet for that. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. Seek the Lord. It's an interesting thing. Romans 3 tells us no one seeks for God. How, 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 do, they, how do you seek the Lord if you, don't, if, if you don't seek for God? Well, this is not a seeking in the sense of looking for what was lost. You know, you lost your keys, you lost your, your coins, you lost your earring or something, you're looking for it, you can't find it. No, this is not uh, looking in the sense of uh, what is lost, but where you're coming with a commitment to the one who was already there. God's there. He's offering all of this. You need to seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. See, there's a time-bound thing here. There's a time frame where he can be found. There's a time frame while he is near. So the wicked need to forsake their ways, and the unrighteous man, his thoughts. And uh, seek or believe without God's help. So the idea here is pray for God's grace that you could come to him, call upon him. True seeking is by God's gifts of faith and repentance. 
where you reject your evil ways and your evil thoughts and you turn from sin to Jesus. This is the gospel we know. Where you come to him believing you recognize your sin, you want deliverance, you want forgiveness, and you know you have no ability to be righteous or to please God on your own, and so you rely on God's mercy. You rely on God's pardon, and, and you receive a full pardon. You come to God in repentance, you're going to get forgiven. Your sin covered by Christ, your substitute. Rome, um, uh, Isaiah 53, verse 4 tells us he bore our sins and carried our sorrows. Verse 5 tells us he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. He was in our place. He's our substitute. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our sin went on Christ at the cross. He's our substitute. But it says in this verse that you should do this seeking while he may be found. That the opportunity might end while you delay. You put it off the door may close. It's like Luke 14, the parable of the great feast. God closes the door on those who refuse the invitation. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. You don't have all the time in the world. We're all ticking time bombs. Man knows not his time. Our days are in God's hands. All the days that were ordained for us, yet before there was even one. It was appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So you best hurry to the cross. <laughs> Don't put it off. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You, you keep persisting in sin. If you're not a believer, you keep persisting in sin. You may be hardened beyond hope. So you're here. So you should listen and respond. If you're a believer and you're like, well, I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm going to sin as much as I want, you should probably believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved as well because you're probably not saved if that's your mindset, if you're not humble and you're not actually putting yourself at God's mercy. Look at verse 7. Return to the Lord. There's repentance. He may have compassion on him. To our God, he will abundantly pardon. This is what God does. He freely pardons. He gives mercy. You come with repentance, you will receive mercy and forgiveness. Abundant sin pardoned abundantly. The shed blood of Christ freeing you from self-made religion into the glorious freedom of the children of God in Christ. A forgiving God, freely giving grace. And in case you're worried, grace does not lead to more sinning. Grace leads to graceful living and grateful living and grateful holiness. And so we see in these first seven verses that in making an everlasting covenant, God extends grace. Let's look at the second part, verses 8 through 13. To bring about an everlasting sign, God exerts power in transforming lives for his glory. It's like this whole thing is building up. It's like you're ascending a majestic mountain, like you're going up Annapurna, and you get this breathtaking vista, you get this breathtaking view, and, and what you see is the power of the word of God, God's all-sufficient and effective communication. Look at verse 8. It starts with the word for, which is the foundation of everything that goes, comes next. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Verse 9, and as the heavens are higher than the earth, he's given us this great illustration, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. How much higher than the earth are the heavens? Well, the moon is 238,850 miles away, a long way away. The sun, our nearest star, is 93 million miles away. And if I counted all the zeros the right way, the, the next nearest star, Proxima Centauri, is 25 trillion miles away. I think I, I, think I got that right. God's ways are exponentially higher than ours. Well, here's the deal. We're not talking about distance here. We're talking about goodness. Not miles, but morality. Uh, it refers to a moral standard that God's ways are right. Ours are wrong. Our thoughts are ridicule and retaliation and revenge. And God's are regeneration and repentance and reconciliation. Our thoughts are pride and lawlessness and jealousy. God's are peace, joy, and love. Our ways are crooked. His are straight. In verse 10, he gives us another great illustration. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout, give seed to the sower, bread to the eater. Verse 11, so shall my word be. So he's talking about his word here. He says, my word that goes out from my mouth. It's like Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So here you have God's Word totally effective to do exactly what God purposes. Verse 11, again, it shall not return to me empty. It won't return void. It won't return without doing what it was supposed to do. It will accomplish what I purpose. It will succeed the reason with which I sent it. It won't be voided, it will be successful, and it is totally guaranteed. This is the clearest declaration of the power and sufficiency of Scripture in Scripture. It tells us who's behind it, that it's powered by God, and it's absolutely effective. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active. Uh, King James says, quick and powerful sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Powerful word. Joel Beakey observed this about this verse. God's word is quick and powerful. Quick means living or endowed with life. This life of the word is no less than the life of God himself. For as God is, so must his word be. This life is also power or energy, power harnessed for work. The life of God's word is ordered and applied to the accomplishment of his purposes. And then he says this, because the word of God lives and abides forever, 1 Peter 1.23, vitality and potency, both unexhausted and undiminished through time. Here's what Martin Luther said. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. 
It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. The Bible is not antique or modern. It is eternal. Forever your word, O Lord, is settled in heaven. Acts 20, 32, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. 1 Peter 1, 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Because God saves sinners by his word via the foolishness of preaching. Just like rain and snow accomplish the purposes of God, God's word never fails. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the word of our God stands forever. You'll never know how God will use his word at any given moment. I heard of a story of a woman who was saved by reading a part of Charles Spurgeon's printed sermon used to wrap some food. And no matter how hard sinful man tries to stop the word, he cannot stop it. Acts chapter 13 tells a story of Paul and Barnabas on the island of Cyprus, where we just were this last week. They arrive at Salamis and they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They go through the whole island as far as Paphos, which is the city we were in. They walk like 90 miles. And there's a leader there, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who asks Paul and Barnabas to, to teach him the word of God. He wants to hear the word of God. But there's this magician named Elymas who opposes them and seeks to push the guy, Sergius Paulus, away from hearing the word of God. So Saul, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you are full of all deceit and villainy. Then he says this, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? You know, there are people standing up all over the world right now making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. You check everything I say because I dare not handle this word inaccurately or in a way that leads you to believe something that isn't in the word. So this uh, magician gets blinded and, and immediately and this guy Sergius Paulus believes when he saw what had happened. He's astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He's astonished at the word of God, at the gospel. That's the power of the word of God. Jeremiah 23, 29, God says, is not my word like fire? We all know how destructive fire is. And then he says, like a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces. The word of God will crush your pride. I don't think there's any more crucial warning to Christians today than to hold fast to the power and sufficiency of Scripture. And then we see in verse 12, the word of God brings about God's joyful and peaceful transformation. Look at verse 12. You shall go out in joy. You've been living in misery. You're going to go out in joy. You're going to be led forth in peace. All you've had is strife. You're going to have peace. And then personifying God's creation, mountain and hills before you will break into singing. The trees of the field will clap their hands. The branches will wave and praise to God. And you shall go out 
the word goes out too. Both sent on mission by God. This go out, this joy, is the joy of prisoners and exiles uh, released from captivity and sin. Joy over your deliverance in Christ. Peace in any circumstance that God brings your way. And leads to contentment. Very rare jewel, as Jeremiah Burroughs put it. And it's in the midst of progressive transformation. Verse 13. I love this verse. Instead of the thorn, okay, shall come up a cypress. Not the same spelling as the island of Cyprus. Okay, it's the tree we're talking about now. Not the city in California, not the island in the Mediterranean, the cypress tree. And instead of the briar, more, more sharp thorns, shall come up a myrtle. And the idea here is the curse is going to be reversed. And it's going to make a name for the Lord, for his reputation, a memorial to him, an everlasting sign. What's an everlasting sign? It is a sign of something from the past that helps keep it in your memory so you don't forget as you go on in the present. It's a memorial. It's a monument. So, so if you look at verse 13, it says that it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. What is it? I was asking this. I remember back in 1984, I'd been a believer for a couple of years, and we were out in the desert going camping near Easter time with my family, and I got up early one morning, the sun, sunrise was awesome, and I'm reading Isaiah 55. And I'm, I'm reading these, this, this verse 13. And, I'm, and I just realized at that moment that here I am sitting out in the desert at a campground that had been turned into literally a desert oasis. It had been watered, uh, there was grass, there were trees, there were flowers, and then I could look all the way around, pretty much 360, barren desert wasteland. And I was looking at this, and I was reading the New American Standard Bible at the time, and there was a, there was a uh, little margin note there uh, on it. If you have NASB, you'll probably see it. It says, the what's it? The transformation of the desert. The transformation of the desert. Uh, uh, the transformation of a wasteland. So the transformation of the desert will be an eternal memorial to the Lord. But, but you'd be really short-sighted, wouldn't we, if we said, well, it's just the transformation of that oasis I was in? Or let's say that God would say, I'm going to make all the deserts now not desert anymore and be lush gardens. So what is the everlasting sign? Well, the everlasting sign in this context here, so that we would not forget his sovereign glory, is our transformed lives in Christ. And not just yours alone, but yours and every other Christian who truly knows Jesus. And, and especially in the local assembly you're in. And it, it makes a name for God, and that, that word name sums up everything that God is, everything about his nature, and so the transformed people in Christ are an everlasting sign signifying who God is. That your transformed life is an everlasting sign. It's like God gives you a soul tattoo and writes mine all over your soul. And your transformed life is an everlasting sign. And so as you're living, you're living like a diffuser. A diffuser. 
where you emit the scent of that which you are filled with. How God manifests through us the fragrant aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere we go. That you become an advertisement for God, not the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I'm going to put in you. Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And transform lives honor God. Transformation in your heart gives you the power to put a filter on a foul mouth. And to see people as friends, not foes. And focus on gospel treasure versus earthly trash. And the you here, verse 12, you shall go out in joy. That's plural. It's plural. It's the redeemed. It's the bride of Christ. Not just your life, but your life linked with every believer, especially in a local assembly. God's elect, regenerated, transformed, uh, plural people going out with joy and being led forth in peace, which is God's doing with our joyful, peaceful participation. We get to be a part of this. Inspires love and good deeds for Jesus in the gospel. So I think that Isaiah 55 is a really good place to start. The everlasting covenant resulting in everlasting signs showing how God displays his everlasting glory how God displays that everlasting glory as he extends grace and then uh, exerts power to transform lives. If you're a Christian, your life is being transformed. You are transformed and you're being transformed. You're progressively being sanctified. And we are a local church in 2018. I've been thinking to myself a lot that, that 2018 uh, will be the year that stretches us the most as a church in the best possible ways. So it's not a time for us to go rogue and independent and uh, get selfish. It's not about me. It's about we magnifying he. That sounds silly, but it's about us magnifying him. Where we yield our hearts to the things God wants to do in and through his people. That we don't think just individualistically about ministry and service. What I can do, what I am doing, my vision, my plans. We think, what can we do together for the gospel? We play follow the leader. We follow Jesus. And godly leadership, humble leadership. As Paul said, follow me as I follow the Lord. Trust a plurality of leaders united in a common vision. You know, if me first Christianity is an oxymoron. Me first Christianity needs to be, be out of our minds. Has to go. And I know that God leads his people through leaders who lead. And he surprises us with joyful assignments that aren't always our first choice. When I was in Cyprus, I was talking to a missionary, and she had been reassigned to a, another field. And, and I'm thinking to myself, so they just told her, hey, you're going to go from here to there. And that was the case. I said, how did you feel about that? And she said, I cried. And then I went. I'll never forget that. Everything we do ought to demand us to abandon our selfish desire and accept God's sovereign will. In our heart, in our home, in the household of God, in our ministries at Grace, in, in the many outward bound ministries that we're involved with, 
where we have to keep dialed in to counterintuitive community where God puts people in the body of Christ that think differently and that talk differently and that look differently but are united in their love for Christ. And I thought a lot about our unity as a church because I've been helping some churches that aren't unified. And I just would say you, we dare not take our unity for granted. And we dare not do anything to hinder it. But that we par- uh, participate gladly and willingly listening to God's effective word, going forth in joy and being led by the Spirit of God in peace. And that everything we do ought to stretch us. We ought to say, I can't do this unless the Lord gives me strength. John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you know all this started with a commanding invitation in verse 1? And it just kept going? It all starts with this imperative, come. And then another imperative, eat. And another imperative, listen. And then another imperative, go. These are all imperatives beckoning our glad surrender to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that our response to you uh, would be to yield everything to you, our every plan, our every desire, our every goal, that we would walk by faith, that we would live trusting you, that we would know that we're owed nothing, and that we truly deserve hell. We thank you for the riches that you've granted us in Christ. May we not set our heart on the riches, but but trust you who give every good and perfect gift. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.